Let me tell you one other thing that some of you, um, <clears throat> well, at least I was asked about it today, and we have by no means been trying to hide this. Um, we have had a staff vacancy, as you know. That staff vacancy has been filled. And um, let me tell you about the man who will be filling that staff vacancy. Uh, his name is Jeff Sample. He is an ordained guy. Um, uh, just a bit about him. Uh, um, one of the reasons that we didn't want to say anything Sunday, first of all, is that he had not told his congregation. In fact, uh, his congregation still doesn't know, but he has told his elders and his staff. Therefore, um, it, it seems that it would be public information by then. So um, he is going to announce, as I understand it, his resignation this coming Sunday. He will be with us this weekend at a um, staff elder retreat. We're having a staff elder retreat this weekend, and Jeff is flying up for that. But Jeff was um, uh, a, a friend, an old friend of uh, Brent Wilkins. And when the staff vacancy occurred here, he, kind of on a lark, picked up the phone and called this guy, Jeff Sample, and asked him if he'd be interested in our job. Well, uh, lo and behold, he was. He's a senior pastor at this moment of a church, as I said, in Fort Myers. He was an old AG guy. Do you know what the AG is? Assembly of God. He was an Assembly of God pastor. That, and that's where Brent and Becky knew him. And um, as a result of their 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 common affiliations, um, and then and as a as a result of he was pastoring a church in Martin, Tennessee, an Assembly of God church in Martin, Tennessee. I decided that he needed to go back to seminary. He did. He went to the same seminary where I matriculated, uh, Reform Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi. He graduated from there. And then eight years ago, moved to Fort Myers, Florida, and has been pastoring a church, a Presbyterian church in, um, in Fort Myers for the last eight years. And so it will be leaving there. Uh, the one thing that we don't know at this juncture is uh, when he will start. Um, our desire is for him to start today. Uh, but he has a 15-year-old son that's in high school, and that's still an issue. And that is as to when they're going to take him out of school. I, know, I think you would agree if you had a 15-year-old, you wouldn't want to be taking him out of school at this point. But I think they might. I, at this, the last I heard, I think they might be taking him out of school and, and getting up here uh, sooner than, than we would perhaps uh, have expected. We hope so. Our job is, is uh, available immediately, and as soon as he can get his his situation with his son fixed, he'll be up here. And um, our, our hope was that we could have somebody start by March 1st. And that may just happen. Um, we, uh, I'll let you know when we get a firm date. We, we're, we hope to get a firm date from him this weekend uh, during the retreat. But we, we really don't know yet. So that's uh, Jeff Sample, his wife Melinda. Um, they have two children. One's a college freshman. The other is a 15-year-old uh, high school sophomore, I think, a, a boy. That will be here uh, as soon as they can get here. So, um, haven't tried to keep that from you. We just wanted to make sure that we didn't harm him um, and his situation down there. Take your Bibles, if you will, and open them uh, with me back to Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> um, before I even read the text, let me, let me start like this. Um, let me remind you that the theme of this section of Paul's letter to the Roman church is really contained in verse 1. Um, Paul is good at this. He often does this. He will state his premise, and then he will spend um, verse after verse after verse uh, demonstrating and proving that premise. Um, his, his assertion 
contained in verse 1 is, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That is the major theme of this section of Scripture. He's trying to communicate to, the, to God's people uh, indeed how safe they are. And um, uh, he goes on after that to spend a good deal of time trying to describe the people for whom that promise is designed. Um, that, that, problem, that, that, that promise of 8-1 is not, um, uh, is not a universal promise. Uh, it is uh, designed to comfort those who, as he says, are in Christ Jesus. And then he describes those people. What do those people who are in Christ Jesus, who have a right to this promise, what do they look like? And that's where we are now. We're in verses 10 and 11. You might recall last week we started by with a look at Unitarianism and really a kind of a presentation of uh, some things that are in the text concerning the Trinity. Just to refresh your memory, there's a couple of places in verses 10 and 11 where the same event is, dis- is attributed to, do- to two different persons of the Trinity. For instance... In verse 10, it opens with this statement. And if Christ is in you, then verse 11 closes with this statement through his spirit who dwells in you. And so I opened last week with saying, um, who is it that dwells within us? And um, and then there's another um, that is who raised Jesus from the dead? Um, I showed you in here where it talks about the spirit is raising Jesus from the dead. Um, and, and I mentioned several of the places where it appears that God the Father is given that privilege, and then even Jesus himself uh, describes the fact that he will raise himself. So what we try to do is, is solve those conundrums. Um, in fact, the only way they can be solved is through the doctrine of the Trinity, and that's what we looked at last week, and you might remember that was spawned somewhat by a woman who came to me on a Sunday morning and said, She's teaching right next door to some Unitarians. So that was what we did last week. So let's go back to 10 and 11 and um, see what we can derive. You know, guys, um, I, I, as you may know, um, I hope this is okay to do. Um, last March, I spent all of March in, um, in the Czech Republic and in Hungary. And uh, while we were there... Um, we got this terrible notice, um, an email that um, David and Molly Shea had lost their 19-year-old son in a car accident in Arizona. And I was just, uh, just didn't know what to do, called them, got in touch with them, asked if I should come home. And uh, they assured me, no, stay there, don't come home. And then, of course, um, the funeral was held here. Randy Ray did it, and all I could hear was, we're just glad you didn't come home, Jimmy, because um, uh, the, the funeral was so much more ably handled in their hands than it would have been in mine. I say that to say this. There was another young woman that was killed. Some of you may have known a 17-year-old just the uh, day before yesterday uh, that is known by many of our people. But the, I, I'm saying all that to say this. When I got back from the Czech Republic and met with uh, David and Molly, the, the, some of their greatest concerns was, okay, we haven't thought about this much, but tell us... Um, Tell us something about the events surrounding death. They wanted to know what issues, um, because their comfort was in discovering, perhaps for the first time, maybe not for the first time, but they wanted to know about their son, 
um, where he was, what he was like, etc., etc. Now, I, I say that to say this, guys. These two verses give us some data, some input concerning um, life after death. But not so much life after death as much as as much it is as much as it as much as it is about glorification. So that's some of the stuff that's in here. Let's see if we can find it. Verses ten and eleven. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Let's go back to the top and let me say uh, just kind of broadly, verse 10, Paul is going to tell you what is true of all Christians now. In verse 11, he's going to tell you what is, all, what is true of all Christians in the future. He's going to tell you in verse 10 what's true of us now and in verse 11 what's true of us later. Okay, so we started with this this um, uh, clause, and um, that's about as far as we got. And if Christ is in you, uh, the body is dead because of sin. Now, guys, that's the first thing you have to look at. Uh, if Christ is in you, that is, if you're a Christian, if you're a converted man or woman tonight, that is, uh, one who can rightly lay claim to this promise of verse 8, 1, or chapter 8, verse 1, if you're a Christian, this is true of you right now, it says, the body is dead because of sin. Now, gang, what does he mean by the body? Uh, well, let me put it like this. Notice he says, it is dead now. Not it will die or you must put it to death. It says it is dead now. Now, um, what then does he mean is dead now? What is this body thing? Look over at verse 5, same chapter. For those who live according to the flesh. Now, guys, don't confuse the body of verse 10 with this concept of flesh in verse 5. The body that Paul has in view in verse 10 is our physical bodies, our actual physical frame. Uh, he doesn't use the, the normal Greek word, um, the normal Greek word for um, uh, flesh is... Is sarks, um, he, use, he uses the word soma. And I said to you last week, uh, we, we, get this, we use this term a lot, psychosomatic diseases. He's using the term the body, the body, the physical frame, the actual body, the physical body, that is dead. Not that it will die, might die, hopes to die, put it to death. It's dead. It's dead now. Well, how did that happen? He tells you, the body is dead because of sin. Sin's the culprit, folks. Due to the fall, the body uh, is the seat of death. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, if you'd like some proof uh, of the body being dead, then, then um, consider the process of aging. You know, I heard somebody define aging as the process of having things taken away from you. Isn't that the truth? Aging is the process of having things taken away from you. Your eyes are the first to go. Your hair is the next. Uh, your mind's the next. And other things come along with it. But, guys, uh, due to the fall, 
the body is the seed of death and is now dead. There is a principle of decay and death in all of our bodies. Our births are the beginning of our deaths. The clock is ticking, gang. Um, the body is infected with the principle of decay. I think you know this text. The wages of sin is death. Well, guys, because of the entrance of sin, the body is dead. Uh, moreover, um, I think what Paul has in mind is it, it's that's this body, in terms of its uh, spirituality, guys, is the battleground against of our whole struggle against sin. It's it's the main arena where the where the battle takes place. It is it is the main cause of pain to the Christians. That is the body because it constitutes my greatest problem in the because with it I lust. With it, I, um, I, I pursue vain pleasure. With it, I steal. With it, I gossip. It's in the body, guys, where the, where the struggle goes on. And what is it that rendered it dead? It is sin, as the text says. If sin had not entered, the body would not be dead. But it did enter, and there... Um, Although there was no decay in, in man's original body, there is now. The body is dead. And look what he goes on to say. Again, I, I want to remind you, he's telling you what's true of you now. The body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. The, the body is dead, but the other part of me, the other part of who I am, the human spirit... My soulish side, that's alive. Now, guys, look at your texts. Uh, I, I don't know about yours, but mine has the spirit, the word spirit, capitalized. That's unfortunate. That shouldn't be capitalized, guys. Uh, read down real quick with me to verse 16. Notice what he says there. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. What you see in verse 16, our spirit, is what ought to be up here in verse 10, and it shouldn't be capitalized. And the, and the reason I can say that with a fair degree of confidence is because what Paul is contrasting. He's saying the body is dead, but the spirit is alive. It's alive now. Um, uh, one of the old Puritans, his last name was Skugel. I don't remember his first name, but Skugel. His great work was the life of God in the soul of man. That's what Christianity is, ladies and gentlemen. It's the life of God in the soul of man. The spirit is alive. Why, says the text? Because of righteousness. Because of the righteousness of God in Christ. I, the, the spirit is alive. Now, guys, let me do something with you that um, um, may or may not um, uh, charm you. Um, and again, I don't, even, I don't know how many of you are interested in this kind of stuff. But, um, you know, Jimmy talked, Jimmy prayed a few minutes ago and talked about the precise accuracy of the scriptures. Well, if you want something about the precise accuracy of the scriptures, here it is. I mean, maybe you never heard this debate, but it's in front of you in this text. Maybe you don't know it's there. If I were to ask you, um, concerning your existence, how many parts are there to you? I wonder how many you would say. For instance, most of you were taught that you are trichotomous. Ever heard that term? <laughs> that you are tri... 
Why? Oh, I have to do it every time, huh? Trichotomous. Uh, does that ring a bell? Have you ever heard the term uh, tripartite? Um, the, the text in Hebrews um, chapter 4, I think, that talks about this, the, 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 the sword of the Spirit is able to divide asunder according to soul and spirit. And you Remember all that? Well, most of you would turn to that text and would say that man, is, man consists of three different parts. His body, his soul, and his spirit. That's trichotomous. Um, there is a whole other bunch of very respected Christians... Who would say that you're dichotomous? That is, that you're not three parts, you're two parts. And they would use a text like this to establish their position. Do you see what Paul has done? He has said, the body is dead, but the spirit is alive. And by the way, the soul is something else. He doesn't address that. He addresses man not as if he's trichotomous, but as if he's dichotomous. That he doesn't address you as if you've got three parts. And, you know, you've heard all this, this business in the evangelical world. You've heard them say, well, you know, the body is uh, this thing, and of course. And then the, the, uh, the spirit is the, uh, the emotional side and the uh, personality side and the affections and all. And the soul is the spiritual thing in which the, the, the work of God is done. You've heard that before. You've been taught that. And very frankly, guys, um, the Christian community is divided over these two things. But here is a place where somebody who has a bipartite view of man, not a tripartite view of man, would turn. He would say, do you see how Paul is addressing you? He is addressing you as, number one, your body's dead. But uh, just as the body is dead, the spirit is alive. So he's addressing you as if there were only two sides to you. Now, um, I, I want you to know, in terms of the Christian community, you can have either one of those. But some of you are interested in stuff like that. Um, guys, back to the text. He says, there is, there is a dead body because of sin, but there is an alive spirit because of righteousness. At this point, gang, our salvation is partial. That is, my spirit is as saved as it will ever be. But that is not true of my body. One of the ways that I love to illustrate that is that the statements that Jesus makes in, in Matthew 5, um, I forget the verses, but do you remember, I, I've done this before, but you remember when Jesus is talking about um, uh, dealing with your flesh and if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. And if your right hand causes you to, uh, if it's an offense, cut it off. Now, stay with me for a minute. Let's just say that I decided to take that literally, which I hope you won't. Uh, but there have been Christians in the, uh, in the history of the church that have and have cut off right hands as a result. But, but guys, let's just imagine that um, because of sin, my right eye or, or that my eyes cause me to stumble. And so I pluck out the right one and I throw it on the ground. But as, as, as time goes on, I still got another problem on the right hand. So I chopped that one off and I put it over there with that die. And then, I, you know, I got a little trouble with my left leg. 
And so I chop it off and I put it over there in the pile. And then, you know, lo and behold, I got this uh, left arm. It's still bugging me. <laughs> so I chop it off and I put it out there. And then the left eye and then the right e- left ear. And it, it all gets stacked up over here in the pile. And there's all those body parts that are sitting there. And Jesus says, if your right eye offends you, you. The, the point is, guys... That's not me. I am not a collection of body parts. There is a me completely a part of the combination of these marvelously beautiful body parts of mine. That's not who I am. And and, and in verse 10, what Paul is saying is, that thing's dead. But the thing that makes you who you are, that's alive. It's as alive as it's ever going to be. It's as saved as it's ever going to be. But that thing is not me. That stuff can offend the me in me. And that, that's alive. He says in verse um, 10, if Christ is in you, if, if you are a Christian, guys, this is what is true of you now. The body is dead because of sin. Um, but the spirit is alive. The spirit is life because of righteousness. But gang, because the body, um, because the spirit is housed in such decay, it, it becomes quite necessary that we as Christians still watch and pray, that we put on the whole armor of God, because my salvation right now, ladies and gentlemen, is partial. My, my spirit is, is as saved as it ever will be, but that's not true of my body, so watch and pray. Put on the whole armor of God. Um, I, the eye that makes me me, is a, is a saved thing, but sin is waiting for an opportunity in my body to uh, cause a whole lot of trouble. Sin can never return me to the realm of death, but it can cause a whole lot of trouble, can't it? You know, I don't know where I got this. Some Puritan said this, and I think it's out of Pilgrim's Progress, I think. And I don't have it quoted correctly, but it says, um, Oh, the Christian is on his way to glory, uh, but, and he is saved. Yada, yada, yada. <laughs> But um, but the flesh can still vex me on the way. That, that's what I would... It can still vex me on the way. It sure can, can it? It can sure vex me on the way, can it not? The destination is certain. The, uh, the outcome is assured. But the body can vex me on the way. Not only can, but does. And has. And when some of us limp around and bear the scars of the vexation brought about by uh, the sin that dwells in my body. Now, that is true of us now. Then he moves in verse 11 to tell you what is true of us, what is going to be true of us, or what is true of the Christian in the future. He says, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now, guys, 
Paul is describing what is true of the Christian in the future. And he states that what God the Holy Spirit has done to Christ, he is going to do to you. He's going to do to us. He is, in verse 11, teaching the resurrection and glorification of our bodies. Did you see it? But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Now, gang, I want to I want to I want to say seven. I'm going to summarize that text under seven different lessons, seven different truths that are that are wrapped up in it. Are you ready? Here we go. First of all, you need to realize this. Verse 11, I guess, first and foremost, is an unmistakable reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It states it twice in this short little text. It says, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, he who raised Christ from the dead twice. Um, if you want a, a, another reference to the, the bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus, you want a good Easter text, there it is. Romans chapter 8, verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. That's the first thing. It is a, another demonstration of the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. Secondly, I want you to notice in the text um, the reference... Uh, that is being made to something that's going to happen to our bodies. Gang, that body that is now dead won't always remain that way. It says, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Those same bodies that are described in verse 10 as being dead are being told that one day they will have life added back to them. That those bodies that now trouble us so um, are one day going to be raised to life. Uh, you've perhaps heard that there is going to be a difference in those bodies. It'll be a glorified body. We don't know much about that. But that dead thing that you're carrying around is going to be raised to life. There's a third lesson in the text. Um, notice, at least in the, the, my translation, it says, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. What your spirit enjoys now, according to verse 10, your body will enjoy then. The kind of spiritual vitality that is true of your spirit now is going to one day be true of your body. Fourth, and this is something that we went over last week, so I'm not going to spend any time on it, but you, in this text, in verses 10 and 11, you get, I think, the only way to solve some of the things that are found in this text is through the doctrine of the Trinity. I said that last week, so I don't, I don't want to bore you with that again. But fifth, I want you to notice the, end, the emphasis that is made in verse 11 on the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You have heard Paul teach this very same thing in uh, 
1 Corinthians 3, talking about the temple of the Holy Spirit. Well, here Paul teaches it again, reminding you that this life imparted to the body is going to be accomplished by the Spirit that dwells in you. Um, you know, when, when, you, when you get in situations like the, uh, the one where you're trying to explain to a family what's happening to these bodies and what's happening to, you know, they, you know all these things, um, it's very, it may not be interesting to you. It may not be, I mean, it's maybe something that you can blow off tonight. But let your 17-year-old die. And then you will want to know. Where is that body? What happened to that body? What's going to take place in that body? You know, there, there are all kinds of weird things about people ask. I mean, I, I was asking in a whole setting, okay, people who die at sea and get eaten by the fish, what happens to their bodies? Well, the spirit who dwells in you is going to give life to that body. How he's going to do that, I don't know, ladies and gentlemen. But the agency of that work is mentioned in verse 11. Sixthly, the possession of the Spirit, ladies and gentlemen. Notice in verse 11, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Those are the only people, ladies and gentlemen, who have a right to 8-1. And by the way, he said in verse 10, if Christ lives in you. We talked about that last week. But if the Spirit dwells in you, I want you to see that this possession of the Spirit presently is a pledge that we will rise again, ladies and gentlemen. You know, uh, Paul says it differently in Ephesians 1. He talks about the Spirit being the down payment or the guarantee. If you can say that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit tonight... That, ladies and gentlemen, is a down payment. It is a guarantee. It is earnest money that you will rise again. That's what this text is teaching you. If the Spirit is in you now, that's how the verse opens. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He will raise you. Just like He raised the Son of Man. And then seventhly, or seventhly, guys, I want to mention um, what you find here taught in verse 11 is the deity of the Holy Spirit. The same thing that is being said of the Son and the Father is being said of the Spirit. Um, <clears throat> that, ladies and gentlemen, is an historic controversy in the church. Um, you know uh, probably about the Arian controversy where, um, um, what's the guy's name? Um, The the whole battle over whether Jesus Christ was God. Um, Athanasius. Athanasius contra mundum. Athanasius against the world. It was at the uh, Council of Nicaea in in 425 uh, A.D. when um, uh, this little priest from someplace in the Roman Empire fought the whole Roman Empire and the church to, uh, to demonstrate that Jesus indeed was to be considered as divine as the Father. That was settled in the Council of Nicaea. If you're a Methodist, you might remember um, uh, quoting the Nicene Creed, you know, on Sunday mornings. Every now and then they'd shift from the Apostles' Creed and they'd say the Nicene Creed. And the Nicene Creed went something like this. You know, very God of very God, very man of very man. That was in the Nicene Creed. Well, that came from that Council of Nicaea in 425, ladies and gentlemen, where the deity of Christ was settled. But let me tell you something. The deity of the Holy Spirit has still not been settled. 
When Susan and I became Christians, uh, we came, became Christians in 1970, as, we've, as I've mentioned before. Of course, I think I told you the part about, um, you know, I, we were just really zealous now to, you know, see that our families were saved. And, and my mother and father came down to visit us. We were living in Fort Lauderdale at the time. And it was over the Christmas holidays. And I remember going to, driving down to Miami to pick them up. And uh, the airport didn't have any parking places. And you had to park outside the airport. And you had to walk a mile just to get inside the front gate of the airport. And then you had to walk to the terminal. It was just unbelievable. But that was what happens in South Florida, you know, this time of year. But anyway, we went down and picked up my mother and daddy, brought them up to Fort Lauderdale where we were living. And, and um, you know, we were just determined where they were going to, you know, they were going to make some kind of profession of faith. And then there, you know, so, I mean, just uh, just a little, just a few mistakes made here and there. And by the time my mother and daddy left, um, my mother had locked herself in the second bedroom and, and would not come out. <laughs> That's the honest truth. And, and, and Susie hates me. Uh, until this day, because I went off to work and left her in this tiny apartment with my mother locked in the second bedroom, vowing not to come out because we had been, I had been, <laughs> my wife's not offensive. I am offensive, but uh, so I had so horribly offended my mother and daddy. And, and um, anyway, but that all got, but my point is we were also concerned about her parents. Her, um, her daddy was a sweet man, an elder in a Presbyterian church in a Presbyterian church in this town. And um, uh, we came home to visit them, and I, I forget when it was. It seemed like it was like 1973. I'd been a Christian a couple of years now, and much wiser and, you know, much more smooth then. But um, he had a document, and I, maybe you've heard of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Well, the Westminster Confession of Faith is the creedal statement underneath my whole theological system. I don't know about yours, but that's the ones under mine. The Westminster Confession of Faith. But in 1966, the Presbyterians decided to rewrite it. It was called the Confession of 66. Does anybody remember that thing? And I, 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 we were home for something, and um, I, I go to my, de- my father-in-law's house, and he's, he's a, he was a dear man. And um, he's sitting in his chair, and he's reading the Confession of 66. The Presbyterians had seen fit to rewrite the Confession of Faith. And so I said, uh, Mr. B, could I read that? You know, I've heard a lot about it. It's quite controversial. Could I read it? He said, sure. I mean, he's, he really was a dear man. And there it was, ladies and gentlemen. As, as big as anything you've ever seen, the denial of the deity of the Holy Spirit. That was the confession in the Presbyterian Church in 1966 that my father-in-law was reading in the early 70s. I'm simply stating, ladies and gentlemen, that this text... Verse 11 is one such text that allows us to teach and hold and grasp and and keep dear the glorious truth of the triunity of God that that God the Holy Spirit is also, that the Holy Spirit is also divine or the deity of the Holy Spirit. Real quick, um, let me summarize these two verses for you. My body will be raised as a glorious completion of my salvation, ladies and gentlemen. Just as surely as the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead, just as surely will my body be raised. Sin has rendered it dead, but redemption includes the restoration of that thing to life. It's the same body, yet glorified. You will live out your eternity, ladies and gentlemen, in the same body that you possess at this moment and yet glorified.
Will there not be some changes? Oh, indeed, there will. What kinds of changes? I'm not exactly sure. I can tell you this. Once Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead, he passed through walls. It was his glorified body. Now, the New Testament gives me no right to say, okay, my glorified body is going to be like his glorified body. But I think there's some connection. But it does give me permission and warrant to say this. Just as surely as his body was raised from the dead, and we're told in Acts chapter 1 that when he comes again, he will come in the same body in which you saw him leave. Acts chapter 1. Just as his body was raised and recognizable as being Jesus, but with different properties, so will yours. You want to know whether you're going to know your wife or husband in, the, in heaven? Yeah, you'll know them. But there's no marriage. No marriage in heaven. But will you recognize... Remember the, the, um, the, the uh, miracle, the transformation, transfiguration? They go up on the mountain. Moses and Elijah appear. And Peter, James, and John say, Oh, it's Moses and Elijah. How'd they know that? Because they look just like Moses and Elijah. <laughs> and you're going to look just like you. In that body that you now possess in its glorified state. I can't tell you exactly what that means. But that body, just as surely as Jesus' was raised, as will, so, so your body will be raised. And then the salvation that I experience now in a partial way will be made complete as my spirit is reassociated and reattached to my body. That's what you find in verses 10 and 11. Let's quit. Our Father, I do pray that you will comfort your people and that you will perhaps solve some of their dilemmas uh, through what Paul has written us in these two verses, that they might discover uh, a greater confidence that, that death, though awfully scary and um, certainly um, an enemy, uh, has been conquered by the one that was resurrected as the first fruits, and we have been promised by this text and others that just as surely as he was raised from the dead, so will we be. And that dead body will rejoin that live spirit and I'll live out eternity in this body. So, Father, comfort your people by um, the truths contained in these two verses. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.